Welcome to the February 1st, 2024 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the findings from a two-year follow-up study of lysocaptogene myrolusol in relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma. Learn more about how reciprocal stabilization of coagulation factor 13A and B subunits influences plasma factor 13 concentration, and discuss the findings from a phase 2 study of inotuzumab ozogomycin for measurable residual disease in acute lymphoblastic leukemia in remission. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Two-Year Follow-Up of Lysocaptogene Marilusol in Relapsed or Refractory Large B-Cell Lymphoma in Transcend NHL001 by Jeremy Abramson from the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, and colleagues. The outcomes of patients with relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma, or LBCL, in whom standard second-line therapy has failed, are poor. Very few patients achieve complete remission, and almost none remain in a long-term remission. Patients with chemotherapy refractory disease have especially poor outcomes, with complete remission rates of approximately 7% and an overall survival of only six months after conventional therapy. The recent introduction of chimeric antigen receptor T-cell, or CAR-T therapies, has provided a valuable treatment option for patients with several hematological malignancies, including those with relapsed or refractory LBCL. In the primary analysis of the Transcend NHL001 study, the CAR T-cell product, lysocabdogene marilusol, also known as lysocell, demonstrated significant efficacy in patients with relapsed or refractory LBCL with an objective response rate of 73%, and a complete response rate of 53%. The median duration of response was not reached, and the one-year estimated DOR rate was 55%. Estimated one-year progression-free survival and overall survival rates were 44% and 58%, respectively. Moreover, Lysocell demonstrated an acceptable safety profile with a 2% incidence of grade 3 to 4 cytokine release syndrome, and a 10% incidence of neurological events. Grade 5 CRS or neurological events were not reported. In the current article, the authors present two-year follow-up data for the LBCL cohort from Transcend. The multi-center, multi-cohort seamless design study enrolled 345 adult patients with relapsed or refractory diffuse LBCL, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, or follicular lymphoma grade 3B. All patients received two or more lines of prior systemic therapy with subsequent progression. Lysocell was administered two to seven days after lymphodepleting chemotherapy as two sequential infusions of CD8-positive and CD4-positive CAR T-cells. The treatment was administered at one of three doses, 50 times 10 to the 6th, 100 times 10 to the 6th, or 150 times 10 to the 6th, 
CAR T-cells, and the recommended dose of 100 times 10 to the 6th CAR Ts was further tested in the dose confirmation phase. The response was evaluated using PET and CT scans per the Lugano 2014 criteria. Primary endpoints were overall response rate, the incidence of adverse events, and the probability of dose-limiting toxicities. Secondary endpoints included complete response rate, duration of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival. The transgene levels of lysocell were assessed using quantitative polymerase chain reaction. Patients who completed the two-year follow-up period or who withdrew from the study after receiving one or more doses of lysocell were enrolled in a separate 15-year long-term follow-up study, evaluating the safety and overall survival. Of a total of 345 patients enrolled on the protocol, 270 received lysocell, and 25 received a non-conforming CAR T-cell product. Patients in the lysocell cohort had a median age of 63 and a median of three prior systemic lines of therapy. Overall, 120 patients completed the two-year follow-up period, and 81 of these enrolled in the 15-year follow-up study. The combined median follow-up for patients enrolled in the two-year and 15-year follow-up studies was 19.9 months. The overall response and complete response rates were 73% and 53%, respectively, while the estimated two-year duration of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival rates were 49.5%, 40.6%, and 50.5%, respectively. The median DOR, PFS, and OS were 23.1 months, 6.8 months, and 27.3 months, respectively. The treatment emergent period was defined as the time of lysocell administration, up to and including 90 days after lysocell infusion. During these 90 days, grade 3 to 4 cytokine release syndrome and neurological events occurred in 2% and 10% of patients, respectively. The most common grade 3 or greater adverse events were neutropenia and anemia, occurring in 60% and 37% of patients in the treatment-emergent and post-treatment-emergent periods, respectively. The authors concluded that lysocell induced durable remissions and had a manageable safety profile with no new safety signals during the two-year follow-up in patients with relapsed or refractory LBCL. In an accompanying commentary, Eli Darnell and Matthew Frigo from Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, note that the two-year follow-up data from Transcend, reported by Abramson and colleagues, remain very favorable and point to continued efficacy, durability of responses, and a manageable toxicity profile for lysocell in patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Moreover, these results are in line with the pivotal trials of AxiCell for non-Hodgkin lymphoma in Zuma 1 and TSSL in Juliet trials. The previous Phase 3 transform trial found that the efficacy of lysocell is improved with second-line use, and the current two-year follow-up study reaffirms these initial findings by demonstrating an overall survival benefit compared to the standard of care. Prolonged cytopenias and hypogammaglobulinemia leading to immunosuppression and risk of infection remain the ongoing challenge with CAR T-cell therapy. Infection remains the primary cause of death 
aside from disease progression, in patients with hematological malignancies treated with CAR T-cells. Darnell and Frigo are optimistic that continued improvements in risk stratification and prophylaxis and the management of cytopenias will lead to improvements in overall survival and better management of patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Reciprocal Stabilization of Coagulation Factor 13A and B Subunits Determines Plasma Factor 13 Concentration by James R. Burns from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and colleagues. Coagulation factor 13 was first identified in 1944 as an essential protein for fibrin stabilization. Since then, studies have established that it serves a unique enzymatic function in the hemostatic process, functioning as a transglutaminase that forms bonds between the glutamine and lysine chains of fibrin monomers. Factor 13 is also essential for wound healing and maintenance of pregnancy. Inherited factor 13 deficiency is rare, affecting one in approximately 2 million people. Clinically, factor 13 deficiency is characterized by delayed bleeding. Treatment consists of infusions of factor 13-containing products, such as cryoprecipitate or plasma-derived or recombinant factor 13 concentrate. Factor 13 is a heterodimer comprised of two A subunits and two B subunits, which are synthesized in hematopoietic cells and hepatocytes, respectively. Both factor 13A and factor 13B are secreted as dimers, and the assembly of the heterodimer factor 13A2B2 takes place in plasma, while factor 13A2B2 has a half-life of 9 to 10 days. Isolated factor 13A2 has a half-life of only about three hours. In vivo genetic and pharmacologic studies have established that factor 13B2 stabilizes factor 13A2 in plasma. Interestingly, several prior studies have suggested that factor 13A2, in turn, increases factor 13B2 levels in plasma, the implication being that factor 13A regulates the secretion, production, and or clearance of factor 13B, although examples of reciprocal protein regulation are common in intracellular feedback loops an inter-tissue reciprocal regulatory mechanism between two protein subunits in systemic circulation has not been previously described. In the current study, the authors studied the mechanism by which factor 13A2 regulates plasma factor 13B2 levels using pharmacokinetic data from the MENTOR2 trial and an in vivo experimental mouse model. The dosing of recombinant factor 13A2 was based on pharmacokinetic data from the MENTOR2 trial, which investigated the long-term safety of recombinant factor 13A2 at steady state in patients with congenital factor 13A subunit deficiency. Factor 13 activity and antigen in human plasmas were measured by chromogenic assay and ELISAs. Immunoblotting was used to measure factor 13A and factor 13B in factor 13A1 double positive 
and factor 13A1 double negative mice, and factor 13A1 double negative mice treated with recombinant factor 13A2. Factor 13 pharmacologic behavior was modeled by nonlinear mixed effects modeling. The findings revealed that mice with genetic factor 13A deficiency had reduced circulating factor 13B2, similar to factor 13A deficient humans. An infusion of factor 13A2 increased plasma factor 13B2 levels in both humans and mice. Since mice had normal hepatic function and did not store factor 13B in the liver, the authors concluded that factor 13A2 does not mediate factor 13B2 secretion. Transcriptional analysis and polysome profiling indicated similar factor 13B levels and ribosome occupancy in factor 13A sufficient and deficient mice. And in factor 13A deficient mice, treated with recombinant factor 13A2, indicating that factor 13A does not induce de novo factor 13B2 synthesis. Surprisingly, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic modeling of factor 13B antigen following infusion with recombinant factor 13A2 in humans and mice suggested that factor 13A2 slows the loss of factor 13B2 from plasma. In line with this observation, when the authors compared infusing mice with free factor 13B2 versus complexed factor 13A2B2, they found faster clearance of free factor 13B2. Taken together, these results establish that factor 13A2 slows the loss of factor 13B2 from circulation, and describe the mechanism underlying factor 13B2 behavior in factor 13A deficiency and during treatment with recombinant factor 13A2. In an accompanying commentary, Nathan T. Connell from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, notes that Burns and colleagues, for the first time, demonstrate reciprocal regulation of factor 13 subunits using a series of elegant experiments in mice and humans. These data have important implications for the clinical management of patients with factor 13 deficiency. First, they provide a foundation for the development of novel therapies based on factor 13 replacement or stabilization. Second, they can help govern the use of plasma-derived or recombinant factor 13 concentrate. And third, they provide an understanding of why certain mutations in factor 13b lead to decreased stability of the circulating heterodimer. Connell further notes that additional research is needed to understand whether the interactions between factor 13a and factor 13b subunits obscure structural motifs that affect the clearance of factor 13b2 from circulation. In addition, high-resolution structural studies of factor 13a2b2 are needed to fully characterize the mechanism by which reciprocal stabilization of factor 13 subunits occurs. Nevertheless, Connell is optimistic that by understanding the regulatory mechanisms of heterotetramers, researchers may be able to develop novel therapies for factor 13 deficiency, as well as other bleeding disorders involving hemostatic proteins in the future. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled 
Phase 2 study of inotuzumab ozogomycin for measurable residual disease in acute lymphoblastic leukemia in remission by Elias Jabor from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and colleagues. The presence of measurable residual disease, or MRD, in patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia is associated with a higher risk of relapse and worse outcomes. Conversely, those patients who achieve MRD negativity following induction and consolidation have a lower risk of relapse and better survival, and MRD presence is an important marker by which treatment efficacy is judged. Previous studies have found that the bispecific antibody, blinatumumab, may be effective in inducing complete MRD response and favorable outcomes in adults with B-cell precursor ALL. Inotuzumab ozogomycin is a humanized anti-CD22 monoclonal antibody conjugated to the cytotoxic agent calichiamycin. It is approved for the treatment of relapsed or refractory B-cell ALL in adults. In the Phase 3 Innovate randomized trial in relapsed refractory ALL, the median overall survival in patients treated with inotuzumab was 7.7 months, compared to 6.7 months in patients treated with standard chemotherapy. The MRD negativity rate among responding patients was 78%, and, in a subgroup analysis, MRD negativity after treatment with inotuzumab was associated with improved overall survival. In the current study, the authors report the results of a Phase two trial evaluating the role of inotuzumab in eradicating MRD among patients with B-cell ALL in complete remission. The trial enrolled 26 adult patients with ALL in morphologic remission and detectable MRD between November 2018 and June 2022. Patients were in morphologic remission with detectable MRD due to failure of MRD response or MRD recurrence. The treatment consisted of fractionated doses of inotuzumab, 0.6 mg per meter squared on day 1, and 0.3 mg per meter squared on day 8 of cycle 1, followed by 0.3 mg per meter squared on days 1 and 8 of cycles 2 through 6, without chemotherapy. All patients also received ursodiol, 300 mg three times per day as prophylaxis for sinusoidal obstruction syndrome. MRD negativity was evaluated using multicolor flow cytometry and, in the case of patients with Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL, polymerase chain reaction studies for BCR-ABLE1 were also performed. Patients were classified as non-responders if the criteria for MRD negativity were not achieved after two cycles. The primary endpoint was relapse-free survival, defined as the time from treatment initiation until death or relapse. Secondary endpoints included overall survival, MRD negativity rate, and safety. 19, or 73% of enrolled patients, were in first complete remission, and 7, or 27%, were in second complete remission or beyond. 16, or 62% of patients, had Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL. 15, or 58%, had baseline MRD greater than or equal to 1 times 10 to the negative third. Patients received a median of three cycles of inotuzumab 
A total of 18, or 69%, responded to treatment and achieved MRD negativity, mostly after the first cycle, and six of them underwent allogeneic stem cell transplant. At a median follow-up of 24 months, the two-year relapse-free survival rate was 54%, and the two-year overall survival rate was 60%. The median relapse-free survival was 41 months. Sinusoidal obstruction syndrome was observed in two patients, one of whom died from complications of this adverse event. The majority of reported adverse events were low-grade. The authors concluded that inotuzumab ozogamycin results in favorable survival and MRD negativity rates and an acceptable safety profile in patients with ALL and MRD-positive status. In an accompanying commentary, Philippe Rousselot from the University of Versailles Paris-Saclay in Versailles, France, notes that the study by Jabour and collaborators reports favorable results for inotuzumab ozogamycin in the treatment of measurable residual disease in B-cell ALL patients in first complete remission or beyond. Similar findings were reported by the Jimema group, which tested inotuzumab in 39 adult patients with B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia and observed a 35% MRD negativity rate and only one case of sinusoidal obstruction syndrome. The question remains how inotuzumab compares to blinatumumab, which showed an MRD clearance of 78% and a five-year overall survival of 43% in patients with CD19-positive BALL. Rousselot notes that neither can be considered superior to the other in the absence of a head-to-head -head comparison. Another interesting question is whether combination therapy with both agents could be effective. The rationale behind this idea is that having a CD22 targeting agent may reduce the chance for the leukemic blasts to escape, and vice versa. Rousselot believes that it would be best to evaluate the combination of inotuzumab and blinatumumab in the frontline setting, which should decrease the overall toxicity, especially in older patients. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.